Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from the Etel East Trade Show in Boston on Tuesday, August 20th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and unfortunately, Scott was unable to join us today, so I'm solo, but we're going to make up for it with a great guest. Uh, joining us this morning is Noam Peransky. He's the Chief Digital Officer at Tapestry. Regular listeners will likely remember that Tapestry is the parent company for Coach Kate Spade and Stuart Weitzman. Welcome to the show, Noam. Thanks for having me. Uh, we are thrilled to have you. Uh, I mentioned in the in the intro that Tapestry is sort of a house of brands, um, and I know you're relatively new to the role. Can you kind of talk a little bit about how that... Um, sort of evolution from coach to, to tapestry evolved and what the thought process is behind that? Sure. Uh, absolutely. So um, tapestry is obviously the uh, holding company for our family of brands. Um, the idea of building a uh, luxury brand holding company is the vision of our CEO, Victor Luis, who I report into. Um, as coach first bought Stuart Weitzman and then is uh, the Kate Spade brand um, was integrated into the portfolio, wanted to have uh, a name that conveyed the, the aspirations of our company. Uh, and ultimately, you know, we, we describe Tapestry as a New York-based house of modern luxury lifestyle brands. And our ethos is really focused on luxury um, being inclusive uh, in its nature. That's awesome. And uh, I'm always fascinated by the chief digital officer role, um, I found there's a fair amount of diversity in sure. sort of a scope and approach. So I'd just be mm-hmm. curious, what, what does a CDO do at Tapestry? Certainly, there are many different ways to tackle the role of a digital leader in an enterprise. Um, I've designed a few organizations as it relates to, to digital and, and how to approach it. And fundamentally, if you're a single brand entity versus a portfolio entity, there are some different considerations in terms of thinking about the role, the organizational structure, uh, et cetera. Specifically with Tapestry, we're trying to build a global scaled digital capability because ultimately Tapestry is a platform. So our digital activities at the enterprise level should be building a digital platform, people, process, and technology. So ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm responsible for all things digital in the enterprise. Um, But there is a web of brand digital leaders, and then centers of excellence that we're building to create that scale platform. So it's fundamentally about being a team captain and making all of these things sing together, you know, creating scale and leverage, brand independence, integrating those things to create the desired kind of team approach and outcome. Got you. And I'm always curious, um, in a house of brands, there's kind of the state versus federal rights. Like sometimes- uh, a CDO is like a center of expertise that the mm-hmm. the brands can use um, sort of at their discretion. And other times uh, digital is more federalized and the CDO is like putting guide rails in place that all the brands um, are expected to follow. Is there like, can you 
Where on the spectrum is tapestry? Well, potentially somewhere in between. We're ultimately in the midst of our journey of really articulating at a detailed level exactly how everything is going to work as I'm as I'm four months in and, and we're building this up. But my view is at the tactical level, there's more sameness than difference. So how we think about uh, our tech stack, wireframes, general experiences within the guardrails of what the capability is gets built at the enterprise level. The brands are ultimately <clears throat> masters of their own destiny in terms of the stories they're going to tell, the assets that they build to create those emotional connections. And we try to make sure that basically at the enterprise level, the plumbing that we develop, the tactics, et cetera, allow that amplification to occur. And we're learning across the family of brands. So as something is working for someone else, we kind of take that and we communicate back to another brand. Hey, you guys should try this. Of course, it's going to be their voice, their content, their DNA, but ultimately the journeys that we can build and the successes that we can have can be pretty universal as we as we approach them. That totally makes sense. And you mentioned you're new to Tapestry, but you're not new to this kind of role. Um, can you uh, talk to us a little bit about your background and how you came to the role? Sure. So my last role was very similar role with the Gap Inc. portfolio of brands. It, it Gap, a very mature enterprise platform, uh, had had a universal shared uh, shopping carts and something like 2004 or 2006. So um, the the platform, the tech stack was already integrated as I entered that role. So that role was more about, you know, organizational alignment and, you know, evolution um, versus building scaled center of excellence. So here it's, we're a new as a portfolio, only two years old in name as, as tapestry. So um, taking learnings from that role, adjusting, and then uh, applying them to the role here. And then before I was at Gap Inc. in that role, I was a consultant for almost two decades doing digital transformation type work. Got you. And uh, you, uh, listeners can't see the disdain on your face when you said consultant, but well, I, cause, I, I, cause I was take, looking at you. I know. I, I, I didn't take that yeah. personally. Yeah. yeah. I, to, uh, I yeah. totally appreciate that. Like, well, hopefully it gives me hope that my career will eventually take a better turn. So um, <laughs> you, can, you can always hope. <laughs> exactly. It's important to have dreams if nothing else. Um, and I feel like that that circa 2005 um, Gap Inc. website is permanently ingrained in my brain because, like, in that era, every client was, you know, having this debate, universal cart, separate sites, and you guys were sort of the gold standard for having integrated the universal cart. So I, uh, uh, your, your site— I can't, I can't take credit no, for, that, no, no. for that decision, but it was, I totally it was very it. wise for that portfolio at that time. Yeah, um, but it is funny. It's, it's, I feel like everybody's in a different situation. You have, at the moment, three luxury brands in the portfolio, right. but— um, they they do have pretty different um, value props and uh, I presume sort of uh, core customer targets. They, they do occupy distinctly different space. Um, so, you know, in terms of thinking about the evolution of the platform and potential points of integration, you certainly have to take that into account versus the very clear shared space that was occupied in my past role. Totally. Um, so obviously you came uh, here today mainly to be on the podcast. Um, but as a Without cur- question. Yeah. Without question. Yeah. Um, but you are a super nice guy, so you did agree to also do a keynote at the E-Tail. Absolutely. I'm, just, I'm just here to give. Yeah. yeah you are a giver. Um, and I, I just got to catch that keynote, but the, the title was Reimagining the Global Digital Experience. Um, which sounds super simple. Um, Very so simple. Was that yeah, just like a small a world? One yeah. sentence keynote. You drop the mic and walk out. Pretty much. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Uh, 
And for people that were unlucky enough not to make it, like, can you, like, what was your high level POV? What were you guys talking about? A lot of it was fundamentally what I wanted to convey to the audience is just to share how being new in this role, how I think about a portfolio of brands and how to tackle building capabilities. And so for me, it goes back to this how do you create uh, a scalable global platform? people process technology, I think in our industry, but especially to the peers that we work with and the other functional areas, you say digital and they think two things right off the bat, website and technology. And of course, digital has become so much more than the website and it's getting more and more disaggregated across you know, touch points all over the globe, but even you know, social commerce, social activity and, and how that's kind of the first point of ideation and inspiration. Yes, ultimately all the way down to the website and also into the store, but um, it's much more the website and it's much more than technology. It's the people and the process. And then, yes, the technology. All those things need to work together. So it was uh, a lot about just articulating to the audience how I was thinking uh, through those elements um, and hopefully they could get a sense for how they could advocate and their organizations to balance those things out to advocate for what digital can be and should be and how to integrate the rest of the organization at large into those activities. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is funny because I, I, I 100% agree. It's a super common mistake that when people think about it, they you go right to the lowest common denominator and the technical bits and bytes and the platforms. And uh, sure, those are important, yeah. uh, but so often the success and failure is much more predicated on the experiences you create with those platforms. And I would argue the hardest part of all of this is the organizational platform and getting the sort of alignment and governance and getting like all the talented people in an organization running in the same direction instead of different directions. I I think that's the challenge of leadership across any discipline. Um, Ultimately bringing digital experiences to life are very cross functional, cross discipline, uh, it, it's kind of where the rubber meets the road for all of these things. It's it's the kind of first place that they converge, and therefore there's a very complex dance that needs to occur to execute that successfully. And I and I think that's a lot of what's missing in today's retail environment is bringing all the disparate pieces and ideation and and objectives of the organization, distilling that down in the kind of clear experiential and functional swim lanes to then be executed against. Yeah. Um, and doing all that for a single brand is difficult. Um, and I, you know, I give you your blue belt if, uh, if you can even just get that alignment in a single geo for a single brand, when you add multiple brands and different stakeholders with, you know, they're starting from different POVs, like getting there feels like that brown belt. And then when you have to do it globally <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, so many different markets have different sensibilities and like whatever the right question. structure and experience is in the U.S. may be very different than what the right structure and experience is in China, for example. Absolutely. Um, so uh, particularly with luxury, one of the things that I find fascinating, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the majority of luxury um, brands in the U.S. are not super excited about uh, trying to sell through a platform like Amazon, for example. Um, and you're silently nodding. Um, no comment there, yeah. yeah. Like, obviously, every whether you want to or not, every brand mm-hmm. has product on Amazon. Um, there's lots of interesting conversations about that. But, you know, the majority of luxury brands so far have made a decision that it's it's not brand additive to be on a, you know, everything-type store. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and uh, like obviously, we've seen your brands uh, continue to invest in their own digital properties. Yes. And and uh, my sense is that while you sell through wholesale, the majority of your, of tapestry sales That's majority is are direct direct to yep. consumer um, through both your own retail stores and your digital properties. Uh, so now you get on the plane, fly to China often. Yeah. By the way, often. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you have to. I actually think it's super cool. Like, I love it. Yeah, uh, it's great. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that's super fascinating to me about China is own properties are important and you have to invest in them. Yeah. Uh, it's extraordinarily difficult to conduct transactions in high volume on your owned properties. And the, the consumers have just been habitualized. To the the T Mall marketplaces yes. and the JDs of the yeah, world, that is the prevailing consumer behavior. Exactly. Yeah. So even a luxury brand generally has to have a T Mall store, and you like you know, and I I'm assuming you guys do as well. We do with Stuart Weitzman. Yeah, our other two brands currently are not on T Mall, yeah. um, but that is that is where the consumer is transacting digitally at scale in China, without question. Yeah, without question. And one of the the. Uh, like obviously that's to Alibaba's benefit, but one of the things that's really interesting to me, you look at a big marketplace in the U.S. and all of that product is still indexed on Google. So even if the the consumer starts a journey on Google, if that mm-hmm. product exists on Amazon, they're going to find it on Google, and Amazon's likely to win the SEO and it's going to send them. Yeah, to, there's a lot of forks to, in that road to Amazon. Question. Uh, Tmall specifically doesn't allow their their pages to be indexed by Badao, so it yeah. actually almost makes it. Uh, it's a huge disincentive to start a product search on the search engine in China. Like mm-hmm. even more so than in the U.S., consumers just go to Tmall to start that search because that's yeah. the product catalog of China, if you will. Yeah, I mean the journeys are fundamentally different in China on many, many layers. Um, the percentage journey starting in search, where they ultimately end up, is certainly one of them. There's also a big difference for uh, between Tmall and Amazon in terms of customer data sharing. Very, very different approaches between Tmall and Amazon. So the, the, the whole digital landscape there is very different, both in terms of um, where she transacts in China, what her journey looks like, and ultimately the, the platforms in general are quite different, whether it's uh, the Tencent uh, platforms, whether it's Tmall, whether it's Little Red Book. There's, there's a whole different ecosystem in China. So as we think about China, we, we announced and teased our – China Next strategy in our last earnings call. And that's really going to be an effort to invest in local China ecosystems and teams to uh, adapt and leverage the ecosystem that's in China and then plug into our global ecosystem where that's appropriate. So there are going to be certain activities that need to be done on a, on a local basis and things like content that we want to leverage globally and frankly bidirectionally so that we're creating content in China and we're leveraging that in other markets and vice versa. Um, but creating those points of integration, but also the regional differentiation that China requires in that focus. Yeah. Um, and it, I, uh, if that wasn't complicated enough, one of the interesting dynamics there, you have so many cities at such ridiculous scale that people yes. don't even understand here. Yeah. You have these- there are quote unquote fourth tier cities that are bigger than Boston that most of the people that are in the room today have never heard of. I would I would bet any amount of money that that's the case. So the the size of the cities in China, the rate of growth, the speed at which they're evolving is is quite breathtaking. Yeah, it 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 is amazing, and it it but it does create this interesting challenge. Those tier one and tier two cities have pretty robust retail infrastructures, and so you you can tackle luxury by opening 
great brick and mortar and having this amazing high touch experience that the the tier one city Chinese consumer like has mostly come to expect for yeah. luxury. Uh, go to that tier four city, which yeah. to your point is still bigger than Boston, and there may not be that brick and mortar retail infrastructure. And so my sense is a lot of brands are thinking like it's simply not going to be possible to scale brick and mortar to all of those cities. And so in some cases, we're going to have to leapfrog the in-store experience and serve those customers with a a new digital luxury experience that, like, frankly, I'm not sure anyone's perfectly invented yet. No, I mean, it, there, there are a number of challenges and opportunities. So as we think about our business, China represents, first off, the, the coach brand in China has tremendous awareness and brand equity. And it's, a, it's an amazing business to, to be a part of and to work with. Uh, and we're looking to provide that same kind of scale to our other two brands in China. But I think what you just described represents the opportunity that is China. So while there are the issues of, what does the retail footprint look like over time? How does that start to mature? At the same time, you can kind of say there's a certain destiny to that because ultimately the infrastructure will propagate. These are millions and millions and millions of people in these cities who aren't served by, by luxury malls. Yeah. Then there's the transactional piece. So is our objective in third or fourth tier cities to transact or is it to build the brand awareness and desire? Ultimately, a lot of those people are coming into first and second tier uh, cities uh, as tourists, and so they can purchase in those cities. But just even to ensure that our brand awareness and desire is propagating into those markets builds that future equity as the infrastructure evolves. And then, of course, transacting digitally is possible. It, you know, ultimately, when people are spending that kind of amount of money uh, in any country, let alone China, for that kind of product, the, there's that desire to you know look, see, feel, touch and experience that kind of immersive 360-degree experience inclusive of the stores. And so those things have to get into sync over time. But we'll continue to extend our own properties uh, into China. We'll evaluate partnerships with others. But ultimately, I think the number one objective is to, to penetrate with that awareness into those you know, third and fourth tier cities and make sure that we're one of the top brands in consideration for that uh, consumer as the infrastructure develops out and as they come into first and second tier cities to visit in the shop. Yeah. Um, you um, sort of perfectly articulated one of the tensions that I think is really interesting in luxury customer experiences. Um, utility and convenience versus uh, sort of experience and engagement. Mm -hmm. um, and so for, for years in the U.S., like the gold standard for customer experience in retail was our friends at Nordstrom. Uh, you know, the, the staff is famously enabled to do anything necessary to, uh, to serve the customer. And for years, they scored the highest in any way you would measure customer uh, experience or satisfaction. Um, but in the modern era, it's kind of funny, um, or modern, I should currently um, – Someone's going to be listening to this in five years and laughing at us calling this the market. For sure, yeah. Uh, the, today, Amazon actually scores higher in a lot of the customer satisfaction indexes than Nordstrom. And they're obviously not doing it by doing that uh, concierge, high-touch, bespoke experience better than Nordstrom. Um, but what has happened is they've changed the dimension and they've made low friction and convenience and speed the things that customers value right mm -hmm. um in luxury like I, I don't think the customer has shifted that they don't care about that sort of engagement and bespoke experience but i think mm -hmm. there are occasions and touch points when that low friction 
uh, convenience is super important, even for luxury brand. And there are other occasions when that high engagement is super important. And I, I wonder mm-hmm. like how you think about sort of balancing those two mm-hmm. things and, and frankly, even understanding what the consumer wants at any given moment so you can sort of deliver on that. that that's the age-old retail challenge is give the customer what they want. And so a lot of what we think about, what we focus on is, you know, how do we, how do we get to some ground truth about that? In terms of the, the MPS of, say, um, one retailer against another, at least in, in my travels, what I've seen is the demands are different. So if you're replenishing toothpaste, what will get a high MPS score is fundamentally different than uh, you know a $1,000 dress or handbag. The expectations are fundamentally different. The dimensions are fundamentally different, even if it's the same consumer. Uh, and then across different customer cohorts, you have just different frames of reference. It's the same reason that on like a TripAdvisor, a three-star hotel might be the top ranked, but surely on a like-for-like basis, uh, if the room was $1, they wouldn't get the same score. There's the context of the the price and value. So as it relates to Amazon compared to someone else, there's a lot of dimensions to to consider. But I think for us, um, where where the customer wants to be frictionless, of course, we want to be more frictionless. Where the customer wants to be um, more educated or have some more ceremony around the transaction, we need to provide that as well. And ultimately... This is we aspire to have this kind of lifetime engagement with the consumer. And of course, everyone talks about lifetime value. But when you're a luxury brand, you're playing this very long game around being um, consistent with high quality and backing it up with service for perpetuity. And that's and that's what really separates um, a luxury brand from a brand that's uh, native or more transactional, because ultimately that's it's it's the power of time that creates that permanence and that true brand value, and that's the stewardship that we're responsible for. Uh, for me, within a set of capabilities to then prop up the brands and their day to day activities to allow that to occur and continue to evolve against the changing consumer landscape. But that's you know that's the reality, the difference between like the ultra ultra frictionless environment that you would see that someone like a, a value retailer or an Amazon is really trying to play in and then in the luxury space that we were trying to provide. But consumers' perceptions of luxury will evolve and will need to evolve to a certain extent to meet the customer where they're at while providing that longitudinal stewardship of our brands. Totally. Uh, and I'm sure it's a small cohort, but I have to imagine your favorite cohort are the people that buy $1,000 handbags with the amount of consideration that they buy toothpaste. Without question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're fine with that. Yeah. But, but at the end of the day, um, even if we get the transaction like for like, um, you know, we want to ensure that that transaction comes with that emotional attachment that, that, that aligns with that lifetime value. Because sure, it's great to have the $1,000 handbag, but we do want their next handbags. We want to sell them some ready wear. We want to sell them some yeah. shoes. Uh, and so ultimately, we just we want to make sure that they feel really good about the purchase and they have this affinity to the brand that they connect to this great experience, great product, et cetera. So even if, yeah, we could get many one second, one and done purchases, ultimately our responsibility is to create that deeper level of engagement. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I feel like luxury was a little late to the digital game for a long time. And, you know, there, some of the luxury houses were sort of famous for, um, our brand is built in the dressing room, not on the web page. Um, and while I understand that sentiment, I feel like uh, 
consumer behavior <laughs> um, is necessitating that that luxury does figure out digital. And I think we are starting to see um, more segments of luxury shoppers that use digital, at least as a part of their shopping journey yes. or their primary shopping journey. Um, like, is there any examples out there that you think are sort of best in class of recreating that brand engagement that, that you would traditionally have in a, a great store on a digital property? Like, what is the analogous experience? I, I, I don't think I've truly seen that yet. I mean, I, I think, for starters, the statement that luxury is kind of late to the game, I, I think that's technically and tactically accurate. I think the interesting piece that, that is hard, I think, for us digital professionals to um, absorb is that the traditional luxury houses have had a tremendous run over the past five or 10 years, despite the fact that they didn't have these big investments in digital. And that just highlights that first and foremost, it's a brand and product game. And so if you have what people desire, and I think if you look at, say, a Nike as an example, if you have something that people desire enough, they will go to the most friction-laden experience possible, like lining up around a street corner overnight to get their hands on that product. So First and foremost, and, and part of why I came to Tapestry, is I wanted to come to a company that was really focused on product because it starts with great product. As a digital practitioner, I can't, I can't sell digital, right? As a consultant, I guess I could sell digital, but uh, in-house as a leader, I can't sell digital. Digital has to be a supporting element. And if you don't have product that people desire, it doesn't matter how frictionless or how inspiring your digital experience is. The, the dots aren't connecting, goes back to the team sport stuff that we were talking about before. So luxury is quote unquote late to the game, but are the masters of maintaining and building brands for, you know, sometimes decades and creating that product desire and inspiration. So being in the space, I want to take the connective tissue of that piece and build a great digital platform to connect that into. And I think that that will advantage us as we hopefully continue to build our portfolio over the years. So that's, that's what I think is super intriguing about this proposition and the in the luxury game, but um, I think it also highlights that digital isn't always as important as us digital practitioners would like to think. It's got to be connecting into a greater, healthier whole. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, and I, I definitely didn't mean to imply that um, luxury necessarily left a bunch on the table by not moving earlier. Um, well, maybe maybe it did, but yeah, man, I we mean, won't know. You know. Some of the players have done tremendously well. Yeah, and for your point. Um, Having the product and having that mindshare with the customer is ultimately a, a much more valuable resource than being good at digital. Mm -hmm. Like, in fact, I'd even argue we're going through an interesting phase right now where a bunch of people that I would characterize as good digital practitioners, including some places you've worked, are struggling at the moment. <laughs> and you know, frankly, there there are some some of the the best, most successful retailers in the space are not necessarily particularly good at digital. So I, I absolutely don't think there's a, a pure correlation between being great at digital and being an economic success. It's it's one element of that overall customer experience. And while, like, in my day job, I like to talk about it a lot, it, it absolutely is not the, the most important element in that. Yeah, and I, and I think over the longer period, these things will play out because ultimately um, – Customers have an expectation that their uh, the places they shop are going to become more customer centric, more personalized. And if you don't have those foundational capabilities, it will become a greater challenge. But uh, yeah, so many elements at play to to bring together. 
Yep, yep. And we're, it's early days, but we're starting to see some third-party uh, digital retail emerge that's focused on luxury and trying to cater to luxury. And it's 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 to me, to me I think the jury's out on whether they have the exact right um, experiences or not. But it's it's going to be interesting to see if they start to change customer expectations mm-hmm. for for luxury shopping. Um, and I think pe- we should be watching them closely, whether we're investing yeah, in I them think, or not. I think, I think as the experience of, experiences evolve across all sectors, right? It is changing consumer expectations and perceptions. And so um, in my position, I've got to be close to that and see uh, where our customer wants to go and try to ideally be a step or two ahead so that we can build into that. Yeah. Um, so let's pivot for a second. Uh, we talked early on about like one of the difficult, most important parts of these kinds of digital transformation being the organization, um, how does tapestry structure itself? Like, do you have all the the digital expertise like federalized, and you support all the brands? Are there like mm-hmm. digital folks sitting on each of the brands, and does the digital merchant sit next to the brick and mortar merchant? Is it the same person? It's it's a I would call it a mix, yeah. and we're going from point A to point B with the creation of my role. Sure. But ultimately we were independent brands that rolled up in the one into one portfolio. So each brand had their own digital capabilities. Digital IT was first federalized and now we're trying to create centers of excellence to then plug in and create scale uh, for those brands. So it, it's going to be a mix. Ultimately it's a team sport. The, um, the site merchandising, the assortment architecture, um, the the day to day commercial plan and those decisions were going to reside in the brand, and then the the foundational capabilities, the plumbing, the enablement will be in centers of excellence. So we're looking to bolster our digital teams. I'll put in a shameless plug, like I did this morning, but we're hiring uh, for tapestry across all digital disciplines. We're also doing some bolstering within quote unquote brand functions, but ultimately, for it to work properly. Everyone needs to act seamlessly. It becomes a more specialized model than when you have distinct brand teams without the federalization. But it's, a again, uh, a mix so that ultimately folks can be more specialized, more focused. And then we're, we're learning uh, across the portfolio. You talked about, I think it was like the, the blue belt, brown belt, black belt. It, it, it can be difficult to operate in a portfolio because you're trying to, trying to build alignment and consensus to a degree, right? And you've got disparate opinions, you, you ultimately need to build and define a demand management process so that you're clearly hearing, articulating, and partnering with business stakeholders to say, uh, you want this capability, what's the value? There's the dollars and cents piece, the input and output related to cost and then benefit. There's also a strategic element you have to incorporate. And then each item is not just its own business case, but things connect together to become greater than the, you know, the sum of the parts, Right. So you've got to you got to manage through that, which is a, a challenge, but also an opportunity because you get a broader view. And then similarly, in terms of implementing things, there's an opportunity to get one partner, one brand to try something, another brand to try something else, and ultimately you can move at greater velocity. Because if something works for one, my past experience is about 99.9% of the things that quote unquote win for one win for everyone. I had I think one occurrence where it was did no harm, and then. <laughs> The rest one, so you can you can kind of with a portfolio more quickly propagate. You do get to some scenarios where regional differences really do manifest, especially on the the experience and then the um, the third party partner and enablement front that can be 
somewhat distinct, but a lot of these things will propagate uh, successfully across a lot of the globe. Yeah, I, I think that maybe is uh, another one of the advantages of your role versus mine is uh, while you have a portfolio, there's some commonality to that portfolio. As a consultant, I have a probably a much broader portfolio, and it's definitely true in my world that there's things that can win for one client and actually do harm for another client. Without question. Uh, and yeah. so, like, you know, those learnings are real tough. It makes it it makes these, um, but that's why you test. That's, yeah. that's the beauty of, of structured testing. Exactly. I was just going to say, like, it, it, to me, it, it really underscores this danger of best practices, right? In this notion that there's and benchmarking, and yeah, there's there, you have to apply context as, as a former consultant to a current one, right? Yeah. There's always there's always that context or marketing efficiency. Well, if you invest, what's the benchmark on marketing efficiency? If we invest one dollar, we'll get an infinity return. If we invest a billion dollars, we'll get a much lower return because ultimately a lot of the media is biddable and there's audience sizes and all all of those supply demand uh, economics come into play, as is overall aggregate brand health. So a brand that's healthier can sometimes scale channels much further than a brand that's in a different stage and you need to think about the funnel composition differently. So, um, yeah, these things all have to be taken in context and you got to be able to read the the distinct numbers. I think you just crystallized the failure of Facebook marketing in one sentence right there. No, um, that, uh, Totally, totally get it. I, I, I'm fond of saying, like, if we're going to make data-driven decisions, like, show me the data. If we're going to go with opinions, let's just use mine. There you uh, go. Almost no one takes that advice, but I'm, I'm trying. It's very clear, though. It's yeah, concise. It's feel, a concise yeah, message. Yeah. I feel like when confronted with the risk of taking my opinion, people are suddenly much more open to, to collecting data. Um, it's a good approach. Yeah. Uh, so I, and I want to pivot to data, but uh, just one clarifying question. You, you mentioned you're hiring for digital talent in New York. Yes. Um, You've just moved in the cool office space in Hudson Yard. Yes. Um, so you could, if you work in digital at Tapestry, you can literally have Mama Fuka fried chicken for lunch every day. You can. You can watch people uh, crawl along the vessel like an ant farm every day. Lots of lots of fun things to to see. Yeah. But yeah, we got great new offices at Hudson Yard. It's this beautiful place, and I we were one of the first tenants, maybe the first tenant in Hudson Yards, and so. The team was having to live through construction for a couple of years. When I joined, that construction was kind of finishing up. So I get the benefit of this whole new kind of city from scratch, yeah. uh, finally fully functional. That's which awesome. Is, which is Maybe. awesome. Uh, I'm personally hoping that vessel-style customer experiences don't catch on too much. As an out-of-shape retail consultant, it's a disaster for me of every it, it does new retail if you build it, they might come. <laughs> it, it does indeed. Uh, I feel like Mama Fuka should have been at the top of the vessel, maybe would have made sense. Um, but uh, I, I tease data. Um, one of the things that we talked about earlier in the show is this whole notion that like your digital properties have to wear two hats. Um, mm-hmm. They have to be transactional when a customer wants to buy something. Um, but they're also the brand ambassador, and they are this, this digital dressing room. And I, um, I feel like that's a, a potential challenge for attribution, right? So if I'm Quip and I'm selling a $20 toothbrush, um, I want every visitor that comes to my site to buy a toothbrush in that visit, right? And so my attribution model is pretty simple. Like what percentage of the people that came to my site? Yes, conversion rate is black and white, good or bad. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but in your world, there, there's a ton of traffic across all your, your uh, digital properties uh, that may not consummate a transaction but may have been wildly successful for you yeah. as a brand. Um, so do you have a super robust attribution model to sort of account for that? Is that 
like something aspirational? We're, 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 we're working on that. I mean, I think there's, I think there's a, a few layers to the cake there. So attribution, my head goes first to marketing and how do I think about marketing efficiency? So we're going to be tackling the typical econometric models to understand the uplift more rigorously. We're talking about some alpha pilots with some partners to help us kind of balance uh, econometric models and multi-touch attribution models. There's, there's a whole journey that, that we're going to be undertaking. I think some of your question always get, also gets into the context of journeys and journey productivity and objectives at the session level and then objectives at the visitor level. And we're really looking to unpack that uh, as we tackle um, rebuilding our experiences as we unify our platforms over the next year or so. And it, it's a really meaty exercise to get into. I think the important thing is to not get trapped in the in the historical norms and quote-unquote best practices, but letting the data unlock what's really happening. How do we think about if a customer might come back six times before they then go in the store or buy a handbag? How do we track that progress? How do we understand that? And how do we evolve and adapt the experience at each stage is really where our thinking is at. But the idea of conversion being black or white or a cart abandoned being bad, card abandonment may very well be highly predictive of a future store visit, and we can view that as being a very productive activity. So we're really trying to get into the depths of the data and understand it and not get into the typical funnel analysis because we're not playing a session game and really trying to think about what does she want to accomplish and how do we evolve and morph that experience to make sure that each touch point is accretive. And to me, that's super meaty. It's very complex, but um, is really something that we can sink our teeth into in our space. And if we get that right, that creates an advantage in the marketplace. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's funny, you know, uh, a lot of digitally immature companies will come to me as a consultant and they're like, hey, we built our funnel and we want to hire you to double our conversion in the funnel. And my smart aleck response is always, uh, that's super simple. We're going to stop letting all this unqualified traffic come to your properties. Yeah, we're only going to let repeat <laughs> visitors back to the site. Exactly. We're done. Exactly. Um, and yet no one's taken me up on that approach. I've proposed it many times. Um, uh, we got to figure that one out. Uh, so I want to uh, pivot to the future, but before I do, I had um, sort of one more uh, specific questions about, about customer experience uh, that came up in your session. You mentioned in China that the brick-and-mortar experience uh, – that luxury uh, customers expect the super high-touch experience. And yes. so you talked about some of these wildly successful sales associates that are extraordinarily... That thousands of social followers, yeah. And, and to me, that's actually the most interesting thing. Like, I feel like that's a, a common model in China is the sort of influencer as sales associate. Um, and, yet, and the importance of influencers more, more yeah. broadly, even more important than... Yeah, I didn't hear. Yeah, I'm actually very bullish on influencer. Other than the difficulty in scaling it, sometimes, and to me, the influencers I care most about are those those micro influencers. It's not the the paid million follower yeah. um, sort of model. To me, that's that's broadcast advertising. Um, but those micro influencers are super powerful. Scaling them ends up being the challenge. Um, in China, one of the clever ways they scale them is they have all these employees <laughs> that they turn into influencers. You own a they, bunch of... They volunteer, but yes. Yeah, well, sure. Um, you own a bunch of stores mm -hmm. with associates that likely decided to work in your store instead of another store 
out of some strong brand affinity and brand yes. loyalty. Like, is that an opportunity for luxury in the U.S. to sort, um, sort of do a better job of enabling the the, cust- the employee base as influencers? I, I think it is. I think that China right now allows for the greatest scale to really uh, scale, amplify that one-to-one engagement and really dig in and, and refine that then take those learnings and then adapt them for the U.S. But I, I think generally, especially in our space, the, the sales associate as a central figure in engagement is a huge opportunity. I think today the, the lens is a little too limiting where we, we kind of get boxed into quote-unquote client-telling systems. And so, okay, the associate can send an email or a text, like very rigid views of the engagement based on the platforms that people buy versus thinking more broadly about the client-telling experience. And then how do we identify where that associate has a potential central role in that engagement and continuing to nurture that? Because, again, we're playing this long game in our space. And, you know, what, what, a, what a pure play, like what an Amazon with the low friction can't replicate to this point is that human connection that that sales associate is creating. And so I think we've got to play to that strength and figure out how to permeate that more broadly in our experiences and engagement. So that's a, that's a lot of what we're thinking about and thinking about, you know, kind of getting that black belt of how do we parse out the globe and where we have this permission to engage at this huge scale at a very personal level, build and refine our view and tactics, and then take that and then look to employ that in the rest of the globe. I think U.S.-based companies tend to take a U.S.-centric approach, take the playbook here and just kind of push it out. And there's a lot of, you know, failed stories about that. So I think it's more about learning globally and having this bi-directional sharing and testing and evolution. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I, it's funny. I do talk about one of the the best ways to compete with Amazon is obviously to sell stuff that Amazon doesn't sell. Um, and you talk about uh, the personalized experience and the opportunities there. I like in the long run, I actually think that's going to extend to personalized products as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an area where I know at least coaches are already yeah. experimenting with some made-to-order product. Yes. Um, there's so many trends we're seeing right now about, uh, you know, customers wanting distinctiveness, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, you know, th- uh, these di- different potential ownership models. And to me, the... The opportunity for personalization is an exciting foil against Amazon. Amazon's whole model is we've got 170 warehouses that are super close to the customer. Give us a million pieces of your property, and we'll split them up amongst all those warehouses. Those warehouses are a huge strategic advantage that suddenly go away when the customer wants something for them that's unique, unique to them. Um, and so I, I, I think some of these, like, we're still struggling to nail personalized experiences, um, so maybe it's a little while before personalized products are at scale, but to me that is one of the interesting uh, risk factors that Amazon has in the in the long term. Um, beyond that, as you're thinking about the future, if you were to sort of put your futurist hat on and think about, I don't know, five years out, um, is it like in your mind has the the luxury shopping experience dramatically changed? Is there you care to wager any guesses as to how the consumer or the experience might be different in five years? I, I think there's still a high level of store centricity. I, I don't think we'll see more than 50% of the transactions occurring online. I think it'll be some number uh, materially lower than that. I think that ultimately, if, if some of us are successful, the brand engagement will be more immersive and continuous. 
versus just these big moments of coming into a store or a campaign launch. But I think there'll be more of this always-on connectivity with um, the resources that we have to bear, whether it's the sales associate, whether it's AI-driven kind of product-finding experiences, whether it's more uh, gamification around product engagement and or product customization and just customers playing with those permutations, then ultimately slowly over time, uh, you know, finally getting the product the way that they want it and then transacting it. It may be a mix of some automation and the customization to kind of help them in that process because ultimately people want to create, they want a unique product. Um, getting started can be kind of the key impediment. So part of it is trying to think about, um, you know, how do we create that inspiration around what could be and letting that go. I think also the the kissing cousin, the product customization are a lot of these drops, right? So people, you know, if it's a limited edition of 300, 500, people can see it, they like it, and they know that everyone's not going to have the same thing that they can express themselves at a more unique and individual level. And I think that's been a lot of the the attraction to the drops, that and just the exclusivity of it. So I think I think the drop thing will continue, but I'm hoping that there's a little bit of a morph from the drops to more engagement with product customization because I think we can play really well in that space. And I think it's super exciting to allow the customer to fully express themselves from a product perspective with within the context of the brand value proposition. Super interesting to me. I, I totally agree. I think it's fascinating. Um, and I feel like that vision is a great place to leave it because it's happened again. Uh, we've used up all our allotted time. Um, if folks have uh, questions or comments, they're welcome to, to continue the conversation on our Facebook page or hit us up on Twitter. As always, this episode's a great time to jump over to iTunes and finally give us that five-star review you've been meaning to do. Uh, Noam, we really appreciate you being on the show. If folks want to find you online, what's the best way to... LinkedIn's definitely the best way to hit me up. I'm, I'm highly responsive. So uh, particularly if you're interested in uh, discussing careers or partnerships with Tapestry, please hit me up on LinkedIn. Look for the conversation. Awesome. Uh, and we will put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Um, thanks again for taking the time today. Thank you. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 